Trey Xavier, everybody. Let's do it one more time. Apart from the very, very meaningful lyrics that I just never get tired of, it's all about the guitar work. Honest to God. Trey Xavier. Hey, welcome to the show, everybody. Welcome to the show. I got to grab something I saw back here, by the way. You keep going. I got something that we need to talk about here, actually. This man has something we need to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Where is this thing now? There was a uh, plane ticket. This is really an important thing. An undiscussed bit that's happening right now. We love to see it. So here's the thing. I mean, there's always a bunch of stuff backstage that kind of piles up after a while. And this, uh, I'm, I'm thankful that we found this because it's a plane ticket for Josh Staples. Actually, it's a drink ticket for it's Josh Staples. It's a drink Staples. ticket? So let's hand it down to Southwest Airlines. Yeah, did you there get you that go. drink? This was found underneath the box here. backstage. There you go. Oh, yeah. As you can see... Yeah. We're off to a very focused start yeah, here. We are. I, uh, Tom Gaffey, you would like to start this with an apology. I, is that right? Yeah. Are we talking about George? We are talking about... Okay, well, so with the light in my eye, I'm not sure if John Sheehy is here tonight, so we're going to fudge this story a little bit. Um, it was, gosh, now I think it was uh, late April, or actually it was in May of uh, 2000, and... Uh, or 1905. <laughs> yeah, some of you guys were here for this. And you don't want to you don't want to admit it because it was actually it was the uh Georgie uh I want to get all this right now because one of my good friends might be here and he's, he's very worried because we were money. on the radio this week and he got fact checked like five times. Oh yeah, five times. So so this was here at the at the Hill Opera House. This was originally the Hill Opera House and this was built by Josephine Hill. And with great son from her son, uh, help from her son, Alex uh, Hill. We had Michael Hill skating here. We had their great-grandson as, as a regular skater here back in the 80s and the 90s. But this was in May of, of 1905, and I think a few of you probably. I was. And um, right up there, if you remember, there were boxes along the side of the wall in those days. And... Everybody was here to see the Georgia Harper play troupe do Camille. It was a grand night. According to the Argus Courier, it was Petaluma's finest men and women in their finest clothes. Anybody that was anybody was here, including either Fanny Brown or Georgie Herbert. And they were two of the madams that were uh, uh, well-known in Petaluma. We're talking sex workers, folks. Sex we are talking sex workers, and I think this is an important time to bring this up. So they were over in a box right over there, and they were being met occasionally throughout the evening by uh, men that knew them, apparently, and were coming and joining them in the box and sitting. Uh, this was, the play that was being performed was Camille, which is a play about uh, a French courtesan, which is a woman of the night. And uh, 
she was an aging courtesan and on her way uh, in the last legs of her life. So this is a poignant play. By Dumas, as a matter of fact. And you guys, we all had to read this stuff in high school, right? You did, you. Actually. So, uh, Georgie Herbert or Fanny Brown, depending on which historian in this town, was sitting in that box over there. And at the end of the night, Petaluma was so shocked by this. Uh, there were so many people that, that apparently took umbrage with the fact that uh, two of Petaluma's finest women, when you get right down to it, were watching the play in the Hill Opera House. Uh, Folks, they didn't like prostitutes. They didn't like prostitutes. Well, that's what they claim. Uh, but then when you read farther about it, quite frankly, that's not exactly true. Uh, when you think about it, in those days, you see all these old pictures of the old Petaluma people, and uh, they're all wearing wool suits. Yeah, correct? And we know, because of something that's come up just recently, that all they really had to get clean was was in a, a clawfoot bathtub, which I don't think most of those guys were using on a daily basis. So quite frankly... That's, uh, okay, so there's going to be a lot of this tonight, where what Tom is, makes a reference that maybe like uh, 10% of the audience knows. Are you familiar with the Petaluma bathtubs up and down the river? A show of applause if you know about the bathtubs. Yeah, the bathtubs. Right, well, you don't? If you don't... Um, there's a controversial uh, art installation, we shall call it, with a bunch yeah. of bathtubs it's an on art the river. Yes. $150,000. Tom Gaffey, yeah. at this last election, was a one-issue voter. I was a one-issue voter. He is against I, the bathtubs. I voted against the bathtubs. So whichever candidates were against the bathtubs, son of a gun, they had my vote. That's just the kind of guy I am. <laughs> but we digress. But Bull we suits. digress. I'm just pointing out that I think those bathtubs were not all that used. And, you know, after like a week or two... A lot of the men in this town were probably not uh, that welcomed by their wives. And this is what I've read a couple of accounts of, that there were many wives who were quite glad that Georgie and Fanny were both doing business here. It gave them a break. Now, why are we apologizing? Let's get back to... Uh... This is the point. They, they were serving a function. They were working their tails off. Uh, they, well, but that's... I didn't really even mean it that way, but they were working. And uh, they came and enjoyed a play at the Hill Opera House, the Phoenix Theater. And the next day, the Argus Courier excoriated them and said, my gosh, what a, wh how, how disturbing it was for the citizens of Petaluma to have to see this in their new opera house. Well, screw you. <laughs> of course they belonged here. And uh, they were even told the management at that time, Alex Hill, said, well, that, that was a mistake and we won't let that happen again. Bullshit. Uh, any of those two women are always welcome in this building. Uh, and I'm sorry that they felt bad. If they were made to feel bad about coming to see a play here, ugh, that's so embarrassing. The, the management of the Phoenix Theater would like to apologize here and now. Let's hear for those women, everyone. My Absolutely. God. Absolutely. So Andy now Brown. that we got some business out of the way, well, welcome to On Stage with Jim and Tom live, Fifth <laughs> Anniversary Spectacular. That's true. You will see tonight um, just how an unedited episode <laughs> appears. That's a lot true. of tangents. Hang on, baby. Um, but thank you so much for coming. This is a labor of love for us, and we it appreciate is. everybody who pays us any attention. So yeah. thank you so That's much. True. It's so good to have you all. That's true. <laughs> Let's talk about this town, Petaluma. Petaluma. All right. The origins, this very block that we. <laughs> Rest upon right now, Keller Street. We are at the corner of Washington and Keller Street. Uh, Keller Street right over here. And it was uh, 1851 or so, and Garrett Keller, 
uh, the namesake of Keller Street, had just hit Petaluma. But it wasn't Petaluma in those days. It was a notch in the river, this little slough here. And uh, he had had a tough time up in the gold fields and found no gold. But he was told if he could make his way to this slough, he'd be able to catch a hunting boat eventually and take it back to San Francisco. He uh, waited on the banks of the river. And I even read one account where he had talked with the Crane Boys from the Crane Canyon area and the Crane Melon. And they were in from Missouri. And they were going to set up a farm up there. And then he talked to a few other people that were starting to farm in the fields around here. And he realized, oh, my God, this would be a great shipping town. Look at this river right here. We can put it all right here. So when the boat finally came and picked him up, he went down to San Francisco and hired a surveyor, came back to Petaluma, plotted out a lot of the downtown, sold the lots for $10 a piece. And he didn't own one of them. So Petaluma springs up. They're building mills and they're building houses and they're building the downtown. A couple years after that, this guy comes up from uh, Costa Rica. To become a state, California had to promise the United States that they would allow Spanish and Mexican landholders to keep their land holding. And this one gentleman comes up and he's got a Spanish land grant. He's been living in Costa Rica and he looks around and he says, uh, you guys built your town on my property. Say, what? You built your town on my property. Uh, no, what? You know what? I know what the problem is. Your property is under our town. You should move it. That's what? Right about that time, this other guy comes up and he comes up from Mexico and he's got another land guard. He goes, hey, you guys built your town on my property. No, it's funny you mention that. Uh, this other guy told us the same thing, but we know what the problem is. What's the problem? The problem is your property is under our town. Uh, you should move it. What? Well, this hell was held up in the courts in the United States for until 1888. Finally, another developer came in and bought all the, both the land grants, uh, took it to court. What he was looking for was a better deal. And in order to solve the problem, find the federal court said, you know what, you can have 88 acres of any federal property that we're not using. He went, took it to Chicago, tried to steal a park in Chicago, and lost the whole thing over it. So that was the end of that. Garrett Keller, <laughs> my hero, and actually he's a hero for another reason. <laughs> he, uh, he actually was the one that started Petaluma. The street that the Phoenix Theater is on is Keller Street. And I will say, I got a, finally I got an email after telling this story for years. I got an email from Garrett Keller's uh, great, great grandniece, and she's in Kansas. And she said, you know, Tom, that's not exactly the way it happened. Well, it's pretty darn close. I mean, yes, it kind of is. And, uh, but we agreed to gr disagree. <laughs> It is here where I must interject and say that uh, one of Tom's favorite sayings is that he never let the truth get in the way of a good story. I will not. That's yes. true. He refuses. The man refuses. Yeah. We can, well. But I do want to tell you, Garrett Keller, who you won't find much of in Petaluma, there's very little about him. His niece had filled me in. He left Petaluma to go fight with John Brown in Kansas uh, as an abolitionist. So I, he, was, he was kind of... <laughs> A con man, I guess, but his heart was in the right place. He will always be my hero. And he apparently lived through the Civil War because I, you know, I had spoken with his great-great-grandniece. So I guess all went well. So that's Garrett Keller. That's how Petaluma got started anyway.
And we're honored to be on his street, my goodness. Well, I really am. He's so, a hero. Tonight, we're going we're gonna to talk old Petaluma. We're going to talk Phoenix Theater. We're going to talk some of Tom's greatest feuds with some of music's biggest names. Really? Oh, yes. Do you want to just jump? You want to jump? Because, I mean, tonight, no. it's just going to be a mess. Without you know editing, this show is going to be a mess. Let's jump right to Morrissey. Oh, God. All right, but then I want to backtrack, because I want to explain one more thing about Sonoma County. But Do we want Morrissey, or do we want Sonoma County? <laughs> Morrissey. Yeah, let's give the people what they want. The man's a dick. Yeah. <laughs> okay. How so? Um, first off, Josh, what is Caitlin's last name? Caitlin and Conan? Yeah, Madison. So Morrissey comes in, and he's doing his show here, and, and it's a BGP show, Bill Graham Presents. And backstage, they always had one of my favorite backstage managers, Ni- Nigel James, and he's a Brit. And uh, when you've got a Brit backstage... It's a well-run backstage. Turns out Morrissey was a Brit as well. So he shows up, and he shows up a little bit late. Uh, His bus pulls up out on Keller Street, and he jumps off the bus, comes out on the stage, breaks into his first tune. Josh, you were there for that, weren't you? (laughs) You missed it. No, you were best to miss it, I think. (laughs) Anyway... Uh, he breaks into his first tune. The crowd is going crazy, and he nails it, apparently. Sold-out crowd like tonight. Sold-out crowd like tonight. <laughs> and he nails this thing, and everybody's just in such a high note, and this music stops, and, and uh, he looks out at the audience, and he says, um, Petaluma, I can't believe anyone lives here. <laughs> well, Caitlin Madison, she was about 16 years old, and she was so thrilled that Morrissey was playing here. She said, I do. And Morrissey says, I'm sorry. <laughs> what the fuck? So I was back there at the doorway. And I just, what the fuck? So I come charging down the aisle, heading for that entrance right there to the backstage because I was going to throw things at him. We did do that to, uh, who was the comedian we threw stuff? <laughs> Is that Pauly Shore? Pauly Shore. We'll get to him. We'll get to him. <laughs> okay. But I'll, but I'll spoil that story. <laughs> okay. He puts uh, some dirty <laughs> words on the marquee at yeah. Pauly Shore's name. But okay. we'll come back to it. Okay. Well, it's just important to know that, I mean, there's, th- anyway, so I get to the curtain right there, and there's Nigel James, who was expecting me. Tom, I can't let you back here. What? That's a British accent. Oh, then I got booted out of my first off. Petaluma gets insulted by, I won't say it anymore. In the, you know what? It was his androgynous tour. So I was calling him an androgynous fuck. I won't do that anymore because I don't think it's really appropriate. However, what a... As long as it's not said as an insult, it's fine. Yeah, it's, it wasn't as an insult. It Thank was, you very much. Please love. continue. Yeah. yeah. And uh, anyway, <clears throat> I didn't get to call him that. That guy played his set, uh, said goodbye, was out the door, bust down the street before anybody had a, ch- a chance to even call for an encore. Uh, okay, you know what? Let's, let's just keep the hits coming. We'll come back to Pedal and we'll come back to Sonoma County. Who cares? Uh, remember when you almost incited a riot on this stage or you were accused of inciting a riot? Uh, that was uh, the insane, insane clown, clown posse. <laughs> Bring them back. Bring them back. Uh, yeah. Here's the thing. Yes. Uh, and, and they were, it turns out, they were the gift that kept on giving. Um, so they show up for a show, and that one is put on by um, Bootsy, uh, Bootsy and his crew over at the Maritime Hall. And uh, Twisted plays and opens the show. It's great. 
it's a Thursday night, it's raining, and we got 450 people in the building. It's not a sellout, granted, but it's a nice crowd. It's a good full crowd. The pit's going off. Twisted comes in. They've got all their equipment backstage. The show is over, or their set is over. Uh, everybody lines up this beautiful set that they had for the Insane Clown Posse, and the Fago was all lined up, ready to go. They were going to be spewing that all over my building. It's a type of soda. They spray their fans with it, and the fans love it. Yeah, yeah, they do. And Boots Houston promised me that he would clean it up. So, all right, if, if you handle that, that's fine with me. We'll have Fago root beer. Uh, one of the guys looks out, and he goes, ooh, there's not enough people here. What do you think there's 450 people here? So I'm standing out on the tile. Boots comes out, and he says, uh, you know, Tom, they're not going to play. <laughs> what do you mean they're not going to play? Of course they're going to play. The opening band already played. We've got 450 people here. Come on, all they got to do is walk on and do a tune. I don't care. What do they do anyway? So, as we're out there talking, I said, no, Boots, just go tell them to come up on the stage and do this. While we're talking out on the stage, their uh, bus actually jumped the curb, fishtailed down Washington Street. They left their sets, their equipment, their band, everybody, and did not play the show. <laughs> Honest to God. <laughs> Boo, really, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> Holy cow. All I could think was, thank God this isn't my show. <laughs> Boy, Boots, we got to give everybody their money back. <laughs> We've done that a few times here, so I guess it's okay. However, they made it up to me every year for the next five years. Their bookers would call and ask if they could play here. Oh, yes, I'm so glad you called. Are you kidding me? Fuck those guys. I mean, <laughs> no, they can't play here, but I must thank you for giving me this opportunity to tell you that. And you would, you would think that's the best part of the story, but the best part of the story is that Tom Gaffey, and I don't know if you're omitting this on purpose or because of your own culpability, but I believe you walked out into the center of the stage oh, yeah, to a crowd right, of 450 true. people, yeah, and I believe true. you uh, said they weren't playing, yeah, they I weren't think playing. you might have called them Boots, Boots had said they weren't going to play. Boots came out and said, you know, I really want to apologize. Uh, they can't play. One of them is sick. What? Bullshit! And this is a mistake, and I should not have done it, and I wouldn't recommend it if you were ever doing this in front of 450 people. Don't come out and tell them, this guy's lying, man. They actually just left you people here. Bullshit, you said. Yeah, I probably did. <laughs> this is bullshit. They're not playing because they're assholes. That's the whole thing. Crowd's getting very agitated. I don't know if not you've met some agi- of the folks. Well, that's no, not what the tour manager agi- felt because he called 911 on you. Well, <laughs> did he? No. Uh, well, the guy that called 911 was their uh, road stage manager, and who they, they said had left behind. The theater were- manager is trying to incite a riot. Send police down to the Phoenix right now. <laughs> I was not. There was no riot to be had. And like I say, they were kind enough to call me back every year for a long time. So, I think we left it on a good note. Speaking of good notes, uh, let's just do the Pauly Shore one, then we'll get back to Sonoma County. Shore, what did he do that upset you so much? Um, Pauly Shore was having a line of local girls backstage for uh, trading massages, which was just too weird for us. You, can't, you just can't do that. The idea being that they would give him a massage to get to go to the show? Is yeah, that the something idea? like that. Yeah. Whatever that was, it, just, there, it was too much, and I put a stop to it. He got very angry about it. We talking underage massages? I don't know. I'm not going to go there with that. Well, certainly neither am I. Okay, well, good. I don't think we should. <laughs> at any rate, it was, it was early in our career. We, I hadn't done a lot of nationals at that point. It just didn't seem like that was... We had a lot going on backstage. This is a backstage that's a working backstage. And we can't have a long line of girls back there because there was also a band that opened up that night, and, and uh, they were quite good. Uh, so Polly 
came out on the stage, made a couple of disparaging remarks about the Phoenix and, and me, but it was okay because I let, um, gee, I wish you told me you were going to ask this. I let one of our friends actually stand on the side of the stage and heckle him. <laughs> and she had him nailed. It was wonderful. What a great night. Aura Patton. It was one of my favorite people in the world, Aura Patton. Aura would come to the shows and bring me a rose that she'd cut off of one of our neighbor's rose bushes every time. And she made it a point to find some of the best-smelling roses in town. So if you uh, live between here and Aura's house, uh, I apologize. <laughs> you grew incredible roses. Back to Polly Shore. Polly Shore. Oh, so he next he plays. He comes back the next time and plays the uh, Luther Burbank. And I don't know how well it went because the third time through, he was playing the Mystic, which was a smaller house. Did you know I once did a show at Luther Burbank that was called Sonoma County's Worst Show of the Year? It was. Yeah. It was absolutely. It was the worst show of the year. This was, well, you got to Banned from doing shows. <laughs> yeah. Sly and the Family Stone. Sly and the Family Stone. Played for 20 minutes. <laughs> yes. Called Santa Rosa Sacramento. <laughs> and uh, left the stage saying he had to take a piss and then left. Yeah, that's true. Left his band on stage, might I add. Left his band on stage. Uh, and then there was a chase because he took their guarantee yeah. money and they had to block him into a parking lot and take the money back from him. Gabe yeah. Moline wrote a wonderful article on him in Bohemian. Look it up, folks. Anyway, yeah. back to Pauly Shore. Oh, He's playing Pauly the Shore. Wells Fargo Center. So he played the Wells Fargo Center, but it was Luther Burbank then. Uh, then the next time, the third time through, he's playing the Mystic, the smaller house. And he's on a uh, radio show. He's on probably uh, KSRO or one of the shows, or no, KFOX, I bet, doing an interview about the show. And uh, uh, the guy said, well, you, uh, this, is, this is your second time in Petaluma. It is? Yeah, you played there once before. I did? Yeah, you played at the Phoenix Theater. Oh. That was that dingy place, wasn't it? <laughs> we didn't have a show the night that he played at the Mystic, so I put, hey, Polly, eat me on the marquee. <laughs> That was, that was our Polly Shore story. That almost happened again in 2010 when we got in a little bit of trouble, and there was a poll in the Argus Courier that said, is the Phoenix Theater a public menace? What? And you wanted to put it on the marquee, oh. is the Argus Courier a public yeah, menace? Question mark. Yeah, Cooler heads prevailed. True. We've all grown over time. We have. I've grown up. We are not a public menace, for the record. Well, we're trying not to be. That's a matter of opinion, apparently, and if you think we are... I will discuss it and try and make amends somehow. Let's talk about Sonoma County. You wanted to tell a story. Oh, all right. Well, the Sonoma County story. Um, <clears throat> partly why we have exactly a crew like this tonight, which is just a nice family, solid Petaluma crew. Uh, in 1854, Petaluma was finally incorporated as a town, and it thought it was going to be uh, the county seat of Sonoma County. And uh, honest to God... <laughs> But this is also, this is the first time Santa Rosa got our goat. Uh, the, Petaluma was sure that they were going to, we were a shipping town. We were a town. We had the most people. They wanted to move the county seat away from the town of Sonoma because it was too far out of the way and the road was too tough to get to. So let's put us here in the south, close to San Francisco. We've got the river. We are it. We've got the train. We're the town. Let's do it. And uh, it looked like it was going to be a county election. It looked like Petaluma had it show, sewed up. But July 4th of 1854, Santa Rosa threw a kager. <laughs> and everybody came. Oh, my God. It was like this three-day drinking binge. <laughs> By the time it was done, everybody absolutely was enamored. Santa Rosa at the time was just a bump in the road, I think, at Maria Creo's uh, 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 Ranchero. Rancho? Rancho. 
And uh, Pedalum was sure we were going to win this, but what you had to do to get the boat was get everybody drunk, which uh, Santa Rosa was great at. They did it. And Petaluma... Classic Santa Rosa. The election happened, and Petaluma was, was aced out. Uh, this is the best thing that could happen. They had set aside uh, Hillside Park, Hill Park, which is uh, Penry Park now, where the cannons are. They set aside Cannonball Park as the place that they were going to put the county seat. We would be in the middle of hell here now. Had this become the county seat, we would be, oh, the traffic would be worse than it is. We'd be kind of like Santa Rosa. I love Santa Rosa. I really do. But we would be as, as big and messy as Santa Rosa. So that was a beautiful thing for us. And to commemorate that, they put the, uh, well, actually, so what had happened, Petaluma was absolutely sure they weren't going to lose this. Are you kidding me? No. Big deal. The night before the records were going to be moved over from Santa Rosa, from Sonoma to Santa Rosa, a crew of Petalumans rode in the dark over to Sonoma to steal the records and bring them here. They, were, they had it all set up. And that's what they were going to do. And they rode over there in the middle of the night. They broke in to steal the records, and Santa Rosa had broken in the night before and stolen the records. <laughs> and Actually, that's a blue line because we're in Petaluma, right? We that's are in Petaluma. <laughs> but then we're but happy you know, that it happened that way. Yeah. Uh, oh, so. boy, are we happy. Now, here's the thing, though. It's a nuanced story. If you're ever doing a walking tour of Petaluma and you make it up to Cannonball Park, look at both of the cannons. I think it's the one on the left. Larry, is it the one on the left or the right? I think it's the one on the left. He wouldn't. When Larry was a junior or a senior in high school, he and his buddies decided they were going to use a pipe cutter to cut one of the barrels off of the cannons. And you can see just about how far they got before they realized, oh, this is not going to work. But you can go up there and see where they had run their pipe cutters. That's just one of my favorite points in the Petaluma walking tour. Go up and look at the, uh, the barrels of the cannon. That was Larry Castellani and, and his friends. So are you going to try that again, Larry? <laughs> I, I, think, I think the answer is no. Okay. So speaking of possibly made-up stories. Could you talk about the uh, Santa Rosa versus Petaluma near-Civil War battle? War, did, uh, how many people know about this? This was... Do, do, well, does anybody know this story that Tom tells about the Santa Rosa Civil War? Uh, this goes Petaluma? down as being one of the only attacks, maybe the only attack that happened in California during the Civil War. And it wasn't exactly during the Civil War, except for it took a couple days, a couple months, really, for the war to wind down after it had been announced as being down. And uh, Santa Rosa, most of Sonoma County was a southern-leaning county. Petaluma being a shipping town, and it was founded by mostly northern uh, Americans. Uh, a lot of Yankees came in and, and set up the shippers here. And, but Santa Rosa was all farmers from Missouri and Kansas and Tennessee and, and Kentucky and places like that and Virginia. So they had, uh, they had a, a lot of the south there. Sonoma was very southern. Healdsburg was southern. It was this Sonoma County was a seditious county, except for Petaluma. Uh, our president, Abraham Lincoln, is murdered after the end, just at the end of the war. And Petaluma and the rest of the country, oh, my God. They've killed our president. This is the worst news. This was Sam Cassidy at the Argus Courier was saying, my God, what could be worse? Oh, whoa, this is really bad. And it was Tommy Thompson who was running the Press Democrat up in Santa Rosa in those days, and he was a Southerner, and he said, well, yeah, that's kind of sad. But what, I mean, really, how good was he as a president again? What's the, did we just not have a civil war because of this guy? Well, what? 
Are you kidding me? He was the best president we ever. Yeah, oh, look, he was good, right? Let's not go crazy about this. Uh, yeah, we get it. He's dead. That's too bad. Are you kidding me? Whoa, whoa. Ah, ah, ah. So the Emmett Rifles. <clears throat> it, was, uh, it was Frank Bayless uh, who was running the Emmett Rifles, but he was the only non-Irishman in the Emmett Rifles. It was a crew of Irishmen. And they were absolutely infuriated. Plus, they were the Emmett Rifles, and they were commissioned by the state of California and the United States to protect against in case there was a southern uh, attack ever. So that was it. Oh, you think so? They loaded up on their horses, and they were going to head to Santa Rosa, and they were going to burn down the press Democrat office. And while they're there, why don't we just steal all the paperwork and make us the uh, county seat? (laughs) Well, that's a good idea. Are you adding that now, or is that part of the story? No, that's part of the story. They were going to try and steal it all. This is it. We're coming to get you. And it was apparently in Santa Rosa. It was the volunteer fire department. Ooh, Petaluma, we're so afraid of you. Come up and get us. Please don't hurt us. We're coming. We're coming. They're on their horses. (laughs) And they're riding to Santa Rosa, and they're going out Stony Point, because that was the quickest way to go in those days. We're coming. We're coming. It was April. I'll bet it was a little bit muddy, because there's occasional rains that happen in April in those days. And they're trudging, and they're riding, and they're trudging, and they're riding. And they get to the Washoe house, and they say, you know... Why don't we get a beer first? Uh, let's have a drink. And uh, that's a great idea. And then we'll go kick their butts after that. Yes, let's do that. Uh, the problem is apparently by the time they had drank through all of their money, they realized they'd have to go home to get more. Uh, and when they got up to San Rose, they could buy a few more drinks. Actually, that didn't happen. Their wives came and got them and took them all home. But this went down as the only attack that happened in California uh, during the Civil War. We made it as far as the uh, Washoe House. <laughs> they got great stakes out there. So welcome to the show. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, Tom Gaffey, one of my closest friends, and in my opinion, one of Petaluma's most valuable people. Oh, um, yeah, but... <laughs> are you kidding? We're, all, as, we're uh, talking to a whole crew of valuable people here. <laughs> You guys, holy God. He can't stand that, so if you yeah, want to make him mad, clap some more. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> no. but um, I, this, is all, this is all in the sake of transition. Don't worry. No. Don't worry. Okay, there's transition here. Um, but, you know, he's, uh, he's also just like a great storyteller, and These are all, he's such an example. History. Excuse me. such a good history teller. <laughs> and he's just like such an example of like what... Petaluma still is to a lot of people, but it, yeah. it has changed so much. And, it has. and I just feel like you have had a front row seat from, uh, you know, what it was in the 50s and 60s when it was like a, what, a 20,000-person yes. town? It was, I think 15, my first memory was about 8,000 people. 8,000 people. Now 50s. it's like 60 or 70. And, you know, what, just, what an incredible just database of stories you have. And, and tonight, you know, we're, we're touching on some of them. We hit some Sonoma Bill County. Sobranis. We hit some Petaluma. But I, I think it's important to talk a little bit about your personal history in Petaluma because I kind of it informs why we're all here. Why? Oh. How many people have gotten to use this building for something at some point? I hope. I, yeah. And it's it's everybody's building, so if you haven't yet, please come and use this place. But if That's it weren't true. for just the confluence of events, you growing up in this town, That's true. the Hill family building this the building in 1904? 1904, uh, December 5th, 1904. Just, we, we wouldn't all be here today. And there's, uh, there's just this one story that I love that you tell about when you were crossing the street when you were, I think, five or okay. six or something. Well, this is, uh, it's amazing how this town keeps giving. 
So I was probably six years old, and uh, I had followed my brother and his friends. They were probably nine years old, and I'd followed them downtown, and I followed them at a distance, and we made it all the way down to PDQ, which was uh, across from Walnut Park. It's not PDQ anymore. It's that burger place. Yeah, you bet, Walnut Grill. And uh, so we made it there, and they got burgers and all that stuff, and I kind of watched from a distance, and they knew I was there, so they took off on me and managed to uh, jet towards, they were going to head down to Kenilworth Park. They jetted across Petaloon Boulevard and over the drawbridge, and I was pedaling as fast as I can to keep up, and I just didn't do it, and I pedaled out into Petaloon Boulevard. I had no idea what a stoplight was, and I think it was the only stoplight in town, and I almost got run over by Mr. Stonich. <clears throat> Anybody here have Mrs. Stonich? <clears throat> yeah, you bet. <clears throat> Look, she was one of the toughest and best teachers. You would be fortunate to have her if you passed her class, which, by the way, she wouldn't let you flunk. Uh, but you would have to work your butt off or you'd have to have her again next semester. It's amazing how many miscreants in Petaluma passed her class because she was not having it. Best teacher I've ever had. And but before I met her, I was six years old, and this old uh, this old guy in a pickup truck screeches in front of me, pulls his truck over at the port, at uh, D Street and Pedalone Boulevard, grabs me by the collar, and sits with me at the corner and teaches me how to tell uh, red and green lights, tells me when to go. This was Mr. Stonich. This was Paula Stonich's husband, but I had no idea how the connection was going to come around all the way to high school, and. Uh, in the uh, many years later, he and my dad would uh, partner up to build the Lucky uh, Shopping Center over on his property in those days, uh, the Lucky Center on the, across the street from the police department. And uh, uh, for me, as I look back on that, that's the kind of town it was. First off, how safe and how smart was it for me to be six years old cruising by myself in downtown Petaluma? Not particularly, but that's the way it was in those days. And... Uh, and it was because of guys like Mr. Stonich, uh, who would actually, he was angry and gruff and kind of mean, but he stood right there and made me learn the difference between red and green lights, and it stuck with me all my life. So that's the kind of town I grew up in. And it's these things that make me love this town so much. I will point out, Stoney was, uh, I, I knew him as Mr. Stonich, and everybody called him Stoney, and I have no idea what his first name is. I never did was not well-liked by the people that he did business with. <laughs> he ran a hard business. He had a, uh, a, it was a lumber mill, right where the Lucky is originally, and he did a lot of business in town. He, he and his wife owned a lot of property, and he sold and rented and leased it. Maureen, did you ever meet Stoney? You never did. <laughs> he was quite a guy. Uh, for me, he was a savior one day, and he taught me my first lesson about, uh, well, Bill Sobranis taught me my first lesson about being a Petaluma kid. But Stoney really uh, drilled it in. It was uh, Carlos Castaneda's in, what was it, Tales of Power, Journey to Ixalan, one of those first, uh, the first chapter of one of those two books. He tells a story about this little kid who was uh, acting up in a supermarket line. And he, as an elder, took it upon himself to tell this young man, this is not the way you act in public. Uh, you are you're mistreating your mother and you're mistreating everybody around you and this is not the way you act in public. And kind of, that's what Stoney did. And this was before I'd read Carlos Castaneda's. <laughs> Holy cow. 
but this was a defining moment, you know. The, it was the, a defining moment. You know, um, and Bill Zabranich, just in case you don't know, he was a prolific writer for the Argus Courier yes. and just one of Petaluma's great storytellers, yeah. another man who didn't let the truth get in the way no, of the story. He taught me everything I know about Petaluma He's a Petaluma personal history. inspiration for you. But I yeah, mean, absolutely. The, the reason I bring that up is, you know, your, your life is just punctuated by these moments that connect you with this town and have yeah. made you double and triple down on your love and devotion to it. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. What about when you were on the edge of this stage? When we your first job was at the Phoenix Theater. Yeah, we were, this building it was, it was we're in. a showcase theater. It was a showcase theater. Yeah. You worked at the candy counter for the yeah. Takini family. Yeah. And you were on the edge of the stage, yeah, I think. Right there. Are you talking about, oh, when I, ah, there were a couple things. Actually, one of the first things we did, and it really hasn't left me. I don't know where you stand on it, but uh, Danny Takini brought us all down here, and we claimed this place for Christ one day. And that's a promise I won't go back on. That's the first person that it was in my world that it was promised that we promised we would try and serve with this place. So How I always keep that in my head. That? How old were you when you did uh, that? Probably 14, I bet. Huh. So, yeah. So, it was, yeah, that's been that long. You made a deal with that man, Jesus I mean, Christ. Yeah, I made a on deal the with Jesus. Of the that's what I'm getting this at. Is, yeah, I did. And this is, and so, yeah, everything I do, I, I make sure that I, I do that welcome. I do it silently. I don't, I don't force. Uh, that on anybody. I let people decide who they're who they want to go to for spiritual guidance. But you made but a deal. Me, you made, made a deal it. with this man. Yeah. Oh, with this right. man. That's this true. Man, Jesus Christ. That's true. I don't know. A couple years later, I'm sitting at the corner. Uh, it's before the show starts. I had to come down and open up. It was going to be an afternoon movie. They usually started about five thirty in those days, and I was sitting on the edge of this stage, and I was looking back at this beautiful old theater and looking at all the seats, and it was home to me. And I said, you know what? I want to come back and run this place one day. That's what I want to do. But <laughs> I meant as a movie theater, honest to God, God. <laughs> I just Here's what I learned. When you make a deal with God or Jesus, get a writer. <laughs> I went, God, I'd like to come back and run this place. I'd like it to be a movie theater. I'd like it to be really busy, if you don't mind. I'd kind of like to be able to make a living doing this. And I'd like to show just films that I like. Would that work? Would, Would have been good for you to mention those things to him. Yeah, honest to God, but, if I got that deal. But honest to God, if that had yeah. been what your wish was and you had gotten it, this building would have been long gone. All the single, most of the single yes. screen theaters yeah. in this area Correct. are gone that were around back yeah. then. So, so you I know, forgot to you get know, the right. Look at that. Yeah. You know, in 1983, this man came back to run it for a one-year one period. Year. Yeah, it was one, one year One year before I was born, in fact. Yeah. And uh, here we are, 36 years later. I was supposed to help uh, Ken Frankel, who owned the building at that time, sell the place. I was sure I could do it. It was a one-year project. I, uh, I, I got one more year. I'll have this place sold. You guys just wait. It's going to be great. Let's talk about Popsicle Love Sponge. <laughs> does anybody know about Popsicle Love Sponge? Oh, okay. okay, one person does. Maybe a couple. Yeah, okay. Uh, so this is the name of a band. Uh, it's a crude sexual thing, Popsicle yeah, yeah. Love Sponge. You can use your imagination. Well, but, um, well I, I hadn't even thought about that. Well, look it up, my they friend. They were a... Uh, um, <laughs> this guy, Chip, their lead vocalist, he, they were pretty professional. There were, there were some people that, I, that I'd worked with before, and, and, they were, and, and I liked them all. This is a great story, though. This, you <laughs> found vocalist. yourself... All you were doing was just running a show, not a particularly well-attended no. show. No. And by the end of it, you there were... There were about 60 people in the house. You were in newspapers around the country. This was my 15 minutes worth of fame wasted on this incident. Uh, it was uh, towards the end of the night, and they had been blowing this smoke machine all night. And there were like maybe 20 or 30 people left in the building. And Big Mike uh, comes up and he says, Hey, uh, Tom, they... Uh, 
He just killed a chicken on stage. What? Of course he didn't kill a chicken on stage. What are you talking about? I go, okay, they didn't, but you should go look. Oh. So I come down, and for some reason there's a light. I can, all I can see is smoke and bodies shrouded in smoke, and the band was still playing, and they were playing a Hendrix tune that was so bad I couldn't remember what the hell it was. I didn't recognize it. And, but for some reason the only thing that you could see was a chicken, feather, a chicken head in the center of the floor with a bunch of feathers and blood. What the You've got to be... What in the band is playing along? They had no idea, and their vocalist is nowhere to be found. This guy before the show, we talked about our sound and our lighting and everything, and he was probably about five foot seven or eight. He was shorter than me. I'm inflamed. This is such a weird night. This is the first night I'd ever heard about PETA. <laughs> this is now like 1.30 in Petaluma on a Friday night, and it's not busy. I, I see this. I go charging up on the stage of band's playing, and I'm yanking plugs and cords, and I'm shutting them down. Screw this. And I go backstage to find that son of a bitch that killed that chicken in my building. And now he's like maybe seven feet tall, and he's got blood and feathers and... Whoa! True story. <laughs> and, I, it just, and he says, have you ever eaten a chicken before? Uh, yeah. Well, maybe you should kill one first. <laughs> okay, here's the thing. Don't rip my head off. I'm going to go call the police. You should leave. How about that? Let's just do that. <laughs> Back me right out of the room. In his defense, uh, he grew up, he wasn't on a chicken. He came from a chicken farm. They actually barbecued the chicken afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> But what I forgot was my own upbringing, for that matter. Uh, I grew up in a town where you would go up to stay with family and friends in Oregon or down to family and friends in uh, Nevada, and it was not unheard of to go out on a Sunday, uh, grab a chicken, kill it, and have the kids pull the feathers, and then barbecue the thing, or actually uh, bake it or whatever my grandmother did. And uh, so, yeah, but in the moment, I'd forgotten all about that. Holy cow. But, so, <laughs> the lights are up. The band is apologizing profusely. They had told him that they, this was his last show with them, and this is why he decided to do this. It was the last song. He ran out to his car. He grabbed the chicken, came in, pulled it over his head. I, I know exactly what he did because there was a guy in the audience taking pictures that were the clearest pictures you could ever see. And he pulled it above his head. Threw the head out in the audience. It's all there on picture. And uh, that's how you kill chickens, kind of. In those days, you'd grab a chicken by the neck and you'd swing it around and his head would pop off. And that would kind of be it. I'd forgotten all of that. I really had. But so, now, this story alone would not end you up in the newspapers. Uh, it's, uh, because you're omitting it. a part. Well, are you talking about the pita part? First I'm talking off, about I, how you ended up in a courtroom. Well, we did end up in a courtroom, but I was in the newspaper a day later. We made Paul Harvey with this thing. It was, uh, and I probably a lot of you guys don't know Paul Harvey, but aren't you leaving out like a this, really important part? Well, I'm. Getting aren't you leaving there. out like the most important part? Well, I, well, the part that I was still to this day, and this really happened at 1:30 in the morning in Petaluma in my lobby. These two women come charging through the front door looking to kill this guy because they'd heard he killed a chicken on my stage. Well, I had no idea there were people like that. This was in 1989, maybe? 
Who the hell? So when we, when we do the show, uh, the onstage show, which Tina, maybe you're familiar with, uh, there's always like a this moment when it's like, all right, okay. we got we yeah. to wrap it up. We got to okay, keep right. going. We got to move on. I'm sorry. Uh, yet I digress. No, no, no. <laughs> The, the man was accused of doing something to that chicken he, on the stage. Okay, well, he was What was indeed, he accused of he doing to the chicken accused, on he, the stage, He Mr. was Gaffey. accused of having sex with the chicken. And, and while... It seems like an important part to me. While mention. the pictures prove that he indeed humped the chicken, <laughs> the pictures also prove that he was fully clothed. But this really happened as well. The DA, who was going to press charges... Uh, Andy Smith was 13 years old in those days, and he was one of the witnesses that they called in. And honest to God, they handed him a rubber chicken and said, would you please show us what he did with the chicken? <laughs> Which, there you've got this 13-year-old kid humping a chicken in the courtroom in <laughs> Santa Rosa. I, I, lo- I love the telling of this particular story really because it's like one of those movies where you see like, you know, the middle scene first and then like the last scene second and then like the third scene eighth. Um, there's a really important moment because you used to drive taxi cab in that day. That's true. And you, I believe, were getting in your car was... <laughs> and you turned on the radio. Well, no, I was delivering film in those days. And the lunchtime, well, first off, I got calls from the BBC. I got calls from MTV, the New York Times. This was my 15 minutes worth of fame wasted on a dead chicken. So I'm in my truck like a week later on Fridays I delivered film for a living. And I'm in my truck, and at noon, it's Paul Harvey. And if I'm on schedule, I'm back in my truck heading to Napa for the first delivery from San Francisco. And Paul Harvey should be coming on. And he comes on at the end of the news, and he was Paul Harvey doing the color commentary. And he'd tell you some stories, and he'd tell you a few more stories. And then at the end, he'd tell you the funny story, which was the punchline of the whole thing. And he says, I can't tell you what he did with the chicken, but I can tell you it happened in Petaluma, California, the chicken capital of of the world. Paul Harvey, good day. Wow. So did he have sex with the chicken or did he not? He did not. No, the chickens proved that there was no sex. They, I mean, it got really salty. Could you see his penis? No, you can't. There's the picture right there. Who could? You can't. He was fully clothed. The man did not have sex with the chicken. Well, um, I, is that a, anybody who knows that story? Did we hit all the notes we needed to hit with that one? Wait, what did, did, we, did we get it or no? Okay. Lance was you, right there. Oh, Lance was right Lance, You'll there. be seeing Lance play guitar in Bohemian guy. Rhapsody tonight. Yeah, Lance, Lance was, there was there that night. And Charlie Roeder, I think, wrote Above the Door in the Dressing Room, Chicken Plucka Motherfucker. And it's been up there ever since. Tom, this is a family show. It's a, you know what? We edited it out during the... And I'm sorry about this. We, we'll have to... We'll bleep. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't care. We okay. can do whatever we want. We don't care. Okay. Speaking of things that shouldn't have happened but were funny, remember when Glenn Danzig beat up the fan? <laughs> well, that happened right here. My God. So one of my favorite things to do, really, in the old days, in the 80s and 90s old days. Josh, you were here then, so it can't have been that long ago. <clears throat> anyway, uh, we didn't, we, as much as we could, we didn't have barricades because I liked stage diving, and so did most of the bands at that time. We liked the dive. We liked the pit, the whole scene. So we're, there's always three guys, one guy there, one guy here, one guy there, working the stage, watching, keeping uh, traffic smooth and watching the equipment and watching the artists. And uh, they're all stage diving. And this one kid stage dives, or is not stage diving, he's crowd surfing, and he gets rolled up. Glenn Danzig is going, he does this, he, this was his move. 
This was his move. And son of a bitch, if this kid didn't get rolled up right onto his knee, and he just grabbed him up and started punching him. Ah, ah, oh, my God, oh, my God. We're going to get sued. And uh, Danzig guy was expecting it because he got him. He got the kid before I did, and I was right next to him. Holy cow. And we ushered the kid out. Oh, geez, this is going to get us sued. This is bad. At the end of the night, the kid was outside the door. That exit going, dude, man, I got my ass kicked by Glenn Danzig. <laughs> and that's the last we heard of it. <laughs> I think that was Rafe Cousins. <laughs> what about, this is a brief one, but uh, the specials. They're going on their 40th anniversary specials. tour this year. Now, hey, we, we love it. We love the special. We do love the special. We love the special. They actually, they came and played that show, and then they took, I think, Lincoln Bar, but, which was a kid. They took half of Josh's band with them on the road. They took uh, Dimitri Katz off. But halfway through that show... Here's the uh, thing. If you want to know how you can be as chill and as cool as a cucumber as this man, oh, yeah, he'll tell this, you how he learned it from the special. This was one of special. my favorite lessons, though. This was, uh, again, uh, conspiracy. Josh and his band were out playing on the stage at the time. Big Mike, my uh, head of security in those days, kind of, when you could find him. This guy was the best hider you would ever know. You could never find him when you needed him. And when you don't want to hear the bad news, he's right there to give it to you. Hey, Tom, man, there's somebody, uh, their guitar players back there smashing bottles in the dressing room. What? <sighs> so I head back to the dressing room, and it's just him back there by himself. And I see glass all over. Hey, you know what? He's got this table of beer bottles. Nobody smashes bottles in this building except for me. And I picked up a bottle and I smashed it against the wall, which is that metal door back there. And he didn't miss a note. He didn't change the expression on his face. He picked up another bottle. Smash! Whoa! Boom! Smash! Smash! And probably we smashed four bottles apiece, I bet. And I had no idea how cool smashing a beer bottle full of beer is. <laughs> The shards of glass flying all over, but the foam, there's a foam that goes with it. It's just, oh, my God. And I turned that, I, I made it part of my shtick. When I would find underage kids drinking in the back parking lot at the shows, I would smash 40 ounces. These are incredible. Oh, my Glorious. God. Oh. It got me through the 90s. It was a... It was great. And when they finally went out on the stage, I let Conspiracy would just finish their set, come out and, and eat their uh, deli tray. <laughs> that was the best I could do. <laughs> it was... I just remembered you used the marquee to attack another band, uh, Cole Chamber. You oh, remember Cole that? Chamber. Why what? were you so mad at them? Do you remember? Well, I can't. What did I even say at this point? Uh, they... You wrote Cole Chamber Sucks on the, I, uh, on the marquee. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the name of the opening band now. They were... Uh... Slipknot. Oh, Slipknot. So it was Slipknot and Cold Chain were playing. And again, luckily, this was a, another Boots uh, Houston show. We didn't even book it. I didn't have any money on this thing. Uh, the first three bands play, and they're nailing it. This is a sold-out show. The Pit, uh, the Stage Dives. It was just incredible. And Slipknot nailed it. What a show those guys had. And uh, for some reason, Cold Chamber decided they weren't going to play, and they didn't. And they took off, and that really, whoa, you guys, but nobody even wanted their money back. It was all about Slipknot that night. And yeah, I guess I probably did put cool I just Chambers love you up. using the marquee as a weapon. I think it's funny. <laughs> you have this wonderful uh, marquee. And in the old days, I, when I was a kid and all the way up, it used to be uh, a point of honor. If you were the kid that got to go up and do the marquee in the movie days, 
And I always was very close with doing the marquee. And yeah, I've been able to use it for an amount of expression. <laughs> <laughs> Let's tell one more like wild fan getting the shit kicked out of them story. They're funny. They're funny stories. Oh, no. Tiger Army. Tiger Army. <laughs> Can okay. you do it? Yeah, look. Uh, this was uh, two friends of mine, actually, that night. And three, four, five, nine friends of mine. I love Tiger Army. Those guys are great. They were having a night that... Uh, it, uh, that's an encapsulated thing. They, by the end of the night, their crew had beat somebody up with a Petaluma Market shopping cart in our back parking lot. <laughs> But they did break a rule that you should never break. Uh, they used one of my Sure 58s to invite somebody up on the stage and then hit him several times with it. A Sure 58. This is one of the greatest mics ever designed, I think. And just such a mistreatment of great equipment. <laughs> and I did promise they would never play here again. So, a couple important details. So, it was like a big brawl back in. It was and, a brawl. The, and the folks that got beat up, they're our friends. But, they are friends. But everybody yeah. was being bad that night. There were no good guys. No, but yeah, the guy also, had, you know, yeah. maybe don't team up and beat up people, especially well, if you're the headlining band. Don't right? beat up a guy with a shopping cart in my back parking lot. That's really low class. <laughs> I was afraid we were going to have to pay for the shopping cart besides. But. So, you made an agreement to one of the folks. I did. The guy that got beat up, who is a very dear friend of mine. I love him dearly and still do and still see him on a regular basis. And I promised him that that's it. We'll never have him back again. I agree. I agree. We're not going to have them back again. And we didn't. Until 2008. Jim comes along and starts doing shows. And he says, well, I've got this great deal for Tiger Army. Oh, Jim, sorry about that. We can't do Tiger Army. And, uh, and I explained to him why we can't. And he says, well, uh, can we buy the guy off? What? <laughs> can we buy the guy off? Oh, I don't know. I'm not going to ask him myself. So through a mediator, it might have been Dallas. Did you make it back, Dallas? <laughs> you did. Was it you? It was Dallas. <laughs> I had Dallas go and ask him, hey, uh, Jim, Tom will give you $250 if you, uh, and he came back. Do you remember the amount? I thought it was more. <laughs> yeah, well, he came back. How, with, mu how much was it? <laughs> yeah, he counted with five. He came back with we five. We just made a show expense. It was fine. <laughs> it was, we did the show. <laughs> We did the show, and it was a story of redemption. And you it see was, that a lot down here. Yeah, it was a story. They had their family in the front row of the balcony. They did. They it was thanked, you, they thanked you on stage. Yeah. And it was just a really cool sort of a feeling of that sort of wound. I love those happened. guys. Yeah. As kids, we watched them grow up. They were part of the Ukiah scene, and the Ukiah scene was really strong. That's the same scene that uh, AFI came from, who are good friends. We love them dearly here. And uh, same with Tiger Army. They're, they're, they were an aggressive crew, but uh, the shows were aggressive in those days. I just, I have problems with the 58 part. <laughs> Let, you know, I, I think that folks here, uh, they, they think of this room and they think about the Green Days. They think about the, the Tiger Armies. They think about the AFIs. All these bands that got yeah. their start here. Uh, well, that Green Day, that Green Day uh, IAC <laughs> when they signed, uh, that's, that's a story. True. That is a classic Which metal story. Which why we never got them back. They were regulars. They got their start in, in, uh, in the East Bay, and, and they were a, uh, a Gilman Street band, certainly. But we were the bigger house, so we could sell many, many tickets, and we could pay them a lot of money. Actually, this was one of the first shocking moments in rock and roll. We made them enough money to come up with uh, uh, one of their uh, uh, demos that they needed to make. It was $1,000 they made playing here one night. And right over there, I got full face, lip-to-lip -lip kissed by Trey, their drummer. And that's... <laughs> 
That's not as cool as it sounds, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, but they, they did, they honored us by coming in, allowing us to be the second show on their Duke, Dookie tour. They finally were, were big, uh, and they offered us the first night. We didn't take it because it was graduation night, and it doesn't matter. You could have the Rolling Stones here, but you couldn't beat free beer in Petaluma. On the 4th of July, you couldn't beat the Kagers. Uh, graduation night, you just don't do a show on graduation night because whatever you think you're going to do, you're not. And you don't do a show on New Year's Eve because we don't have a bar. And in those days, in the 80s and 90s, uh, it was, uh, it was, there were Kager parties quite often. So what's interesting about this story well, you can't is compete with those. it thrusts the Phoenix like right in the center of this Absolutely. really interesting thing that started. Because Green Day signing was a huge moment. Green Day signing to a, a, a major label uh, upset a lot, upset members of this group called the Independent Arts Coalition, the IA, IAOC, IOAC, IOAC. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful people. They were great young artists. They were a Santa Rosa punk crew. Great artists, uh, great poets, great musicians. But they were independent only. You, once you sign, you are dead to us. Well, not to the Phoenix. It was Green Day. We had them so many times, and we loved those guys. And, and most of the audience did, too. So uh, we had Green Day come for the second day of their Tukey Dookie tour, and the IAC was out uh, picketing <laughs> out in front. <clears throat> Trey, their drummer, went out and picketed with them for a while. <laughs> well, because this was going to be it. This was the last time you were going to see them in a house yeah, like this. this. Was, and it was. It was our last time with Green Day. They got way too big for us. and, and uh, So that was it. And uh, they took it all in stride. But they, they got picketed for being successful. Uh, they were a band, really, that were working their butts off. They were crossing the country uh, all the time. They had a library bus. And they were sleeping on people's living rooms. You know, if you want to play music... Uh, into your 40s, 50s, and 60s and go forever, and you want to tour, you do need to try and make some money doing that. So I absolutely agreed that they were able to do that, and, and I'm, I'm proud that they did. They it would have been funny if the crowd had just great booed you at that. Just like, just like enormous booze. <coughs> well, because some people still uh, hold a grudge. But, I mean, I, not, probably not that many, but I mean, there, there is still, like, selling oh, out yeah. is considered a bad thing. Whereas you would say, no, no, yes. no. Well, Sell but out. also the other thing is that was my shtick, and I was sticking with it, but I got to say, uh, this is now, that was in 92, maybe 93, somewhere in that area. So what is this, 20 years later? And there are many kids that were kids playing in those days that are at the apex of their careers as musicians now. And they're still bleeding for the art. And uh, so in one respect, I was wrong there. It's, it's tough to go out on the road. It's tough to, uh, to be an artist. And it's tough to have that drive to do that. Uh, and it's tough to have to go out and keep playing for people. So uh, there are, and tonight with us in this room, there are incredible players here that still will bleed for this art. <laughs> That's why the Phoenix gets to stay here. In the early 1990s, another band came and played here, but they were already famous, and it was, of course, Metallica. Oh, Metallica. <laughs> and what, and so a lot of people know about this. They they tried their first. Okay. Well, for, why did they play the Phoenix? Okay, so uh, we were Megadeth house. We we had Megadeth a bunch of times, and Dave Mustaine had gone over to Europe and gotten he, the party was too much, and he ended up having to uh, the, the the tour collapsed around his drug use. I think so. The label kicked him off and said, uh, "You can't uh, you can't play here ever again, or you can't play with our label ever again." Please, please, please. 
please, I'll straighten up. Please let me have another tour. Let's see if I can make this happen. So they got him a, uh, they got him a chaperone backstage, and they put him on a club tour, and this was one of the stops. This is like our third or fourth time with, with Dave Mustaine, and uh, the Metallica boys were here to see that. <clears throat> but uh, because he was on probation with his record label, the Metallica boys were not allowed backstage. <clears throat> and right there at that curtain again, I'm walking to the back curtain, and their chaperone, this guy is about six foot five, weighing in at about 450 pounds, has Lars Ulrich by the scruff of his, by his collar. And he throws him out of the, car, the curtains. He says, this man is not supposed to be back here. Whoa, uh, that's a tough one for me to get over. I'm not sure how I'm going to tell him this. <laughs> I didn't have to because they were so pissed off. They went across the street and hung out at Volpe's and sang Italian with John Volpe that night. Friday, <clears throat> and they loved it to the point that they were paying. This is the story the BGP people told me. Cause, uh, so they, were, they went and did, um, Metallica came up with their Enter Sandman album, whatever that was called. I think it was the Black Album. <laughs> the Black and, Album. And where a lot of people get the story wrong is they say, oh, yeah, like all these bands that got their start here, like such and such, such and such, Metallica. The, no, no, they, they, they no. were a famous band. And, in fact, this tour yeah. that they played two shows of yeah, on this the, stage this was, was, was an tour. arena tour. They yeah. were playing the Black Album at the Oracle Arena like a yeah. month later. But yeah. why did they want to come here? So they had played. I understand they were playing Japan, and they weren't getting the response they were looking for. So, whoa, is this material any good? We need to try it out on an American audience before we go big with this to make sure what we've got here. We've got to try it somewhere where maybe if it doesn't go right, a lot of people won't see us. Hey, what about that shithole in Petaluma? <laughs> we love the bar across the street. We can hang out at the bar across the street and then play. <laughs> So I get this call from BGP as Nigel James. Actually, it was, uh, it was one of their office guys. And, and uh, he said, uh, so, Tom, uh, we've got a band that... Uh, and I don't know how it happens, but I think even Lance told me they were coming. Every kid in Petaluma knew they were coming but me until I got the call from BGP looking to book the show. Uh, we've got this band that uh, is really big. We can't tell you who it is. Is it Metallica? Oh, well, I can't tell you that. Okay. <laughs> So they came in and did a two-night tour. We uh, it sold out in 15 minutes, I think, both nights. It was called Rehearsing with Metallica in 1991. <laughs> but we got them because they like Volpe's. I mean, that's a summary. It's because they played with John Volpe. And you can go and sing with John Volpe still in 2019. You He's still there. Can. You absolutely can, yeah. This is just like a bite-sized story. How, how long have we been doing this? Anybody keeping time? Uh-oh. How long have we been doing it? Anybody know? What time is it? Hey, that, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's go a little longer. Okay. What about that night that MXPX was playing? Oh, the oh. This God. this is just like a fun bite size. Well, one. this was they were We've a religious had a band. Long ones. Let's do a bite size. They were a religious band, and because uh, they were they were a Christian band in those days, MXPX, and uh, Full House, and everything was good. It was intermission before they were to come on, and some kid was walking through the lobby. He was going to go up to the bathroom. He was walking up the steps in front of the mirror, and his friend pushes him. His hand goes out and through the mirror in the lobby. And this was a leaded, rose-tinted mirror. It was, God, it was placed there in 1957, probably, or maybe even in the 20s. And uh, this thing, everything froze. He, his hand went through the mirror, and there was a soffit of about uh, four inches. It was, it was framed in two-by-fours behind there. And he pulled his hand out, and the top of the mirror came down like a guillotine. <laughs> Honest to God. <laughs> and did not chop his hand off. We have, we've had some miraculous things happen here, and this was one of them. 
Oh my God, everybody in the lobby, it, it was a, a moment frozen in time. We all looked and we all saw that thing. And it was just, oh, what a miracle for crying out loud. So the next day, Mike's glass comes in to take the rest of it apart. And it turns out that the glue that they'd glued it on with was no longer glue. And there was nothing holding this 20-foot leaded uh, rose-tinted mirror uh, for, I don't know, 20 years, 30 years. We had people going up and down those steps. I used to sleep on that landing. It was one of my favorite places. The lower step was perfect. Uh, we had, it was carpeted in those days, and it was perfect pillow height. So I could just lay out on that landing and sleep there. Kids were wrestling there. We were actually <laughs> we were skateboarding down it. You could use a skateboard without wheels, and on the carpet, it was an incredible ride. Oh, my God. <clears throat> we were doing all of that in front of this mirror, and there was nothing holding that thing on. <clears throat> Whew. That's a miracle. That's a bite-sized story. I love that story. And I also love the story of Amazing Grace on this stage. Aaron Neville, one of my heroes. It was, I think, their third and last time playing here. It was a wonderful night. We always sold out with the Neville brothers. And, and uh, oh, my friend Mark Bronstein, who uh, got his start in rock and roll, is uh, the manager, the road manager for uh, Big Brother and the Holy Company with Janice. And uh, so he was putting this show on with Aaron Neville, with the Neville brothers. And uh, the, the band's playing, and they say, we're going to need another case of water backstage. Okay, I'll take that back there. So I grab up a case of water, and I come. I'm going to go through the back parking lot to get it to them. The crowd was too big to get through. So I'm going around the back parking lot. In those days, we had this big metal door. And to open it, it would make this huge screeching sound. Aaron was playing Amazing Grace, was doing his, that was his showcase, showcase tune. He was doing Amazing Grace. And just when he was hitting the money shot note, I opened the door. <laughs> and, and it ruined the entire thing. <laughs> and I did hear about that. I had to, that, was, that was not my staff. That was me. I'm so sorry. We never got them back. <laughs> that was... That was our last time with the Neville Brothers. So many of these experiences that you've had and that a lot of us have had here could only have happened because we had a building like the Phoenix. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, you know, there's been times where you've, you know, you've kind of had to, like, arrange your life around keeping it open. And, and one oh, yeah. of the great ones is when you did drive taxi, and, oh, yeah. uh, which I referenced earlier. Had the oh, that was, off, boy, if you want, but, you can't do it now. What a hoot that was. To be Tom Gaffey, because uh, I'd already been at the Phoenix for maybe 10, 15 years, uh, to be Tom Gaffey driving cab in Petaluma, oh, man. The stories, the action, the tips. Whoa, what a gig. <laughs> but you, uh, you were promoting a show later in the night on a day that you were doing. <clears throat> but it wasn't Rossell. Who? It was, uh, was Talib Kweli. Talib Kweli. So he was going to play the Phoenix Theater on Friday night. Thursday night was my night in Petaluma. I was the only cab driver. I had the phone, uh, and I had the cab. I had another guy backing me up, George, but he didn't want to drive, so I'll just take all the rides. Oh, what a wonderful night. You're cruising Petaluma, picking up Petalumans and getting story. And then when the bars closed, that was always incredible. So I get this call at about 1 a.m. Uh, there's a band out at the... Uh, Quality in, and they need a ride. They're going to do a late night session out at Prairie Sun Recording Studio. Wow, 
That's Talib Kwalib. Those are the guys who are playing on my feeder. Yeah, I'll go pick them up. Well, they're waiting in the parking lot. And I go to the parking lot of, of the hotel, and they're all out in the parking lot, and it's a rainy, foggy night. And they're already out on the outskirts, and there's about six of them. And we cram them all in the cab, and it's rainy, and the windshield wiper. This is like the opening scene of Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> the windshield wipers, the rain, the fog. And one of them even says, hey, hey man, uh, you got any black folk that live in this town? Oh, yeah, no, no, this is great. You guys are going to have such a great time here. This is the task. Everybody's waiting to see you guys. It's going to be wonderful. Oh, uh, okay. Foot up, foot up. We're driving up 101. It's dark. You turn off 101 into the country, and you go along this country road to get to uh, Prairie Sun Studios, and you pull up to the driveway, which is way out in the country now, and it's foggy and dripping, and there's this gate that just opens up. On this dark driveway leading up to this old Victorian-style house. And one of, them, one of them says, oh, my God, this is just like the house on Haunted Hill. This is the time that I chose to say, no, guys, it's okay. I'm actually the guy putting the show on for you guys tomorrow. What the fuck? Boom. Doors open up. They are out in the street, out in the driveway. What the fuck? Who the fuck? What the fuck? You're the what? You're the how? What the hell is going on? Scared the shit out of those poor guys. They had a wonderful show the next night. I don't know how it went out at Prairie Sun. They walked the rest of the way up the driveway. <laughs> Couldn't get them back in the cab. Luca so, paid me for that, though, so <laughs> I got paid. You, you make a point about how this building, when it was built as the Hill Opera House, it was meant well, to be the, the finest, finest opera house, would yeah. you say, north of and San it was, Francisco? Oh, yeah. Maybe in Absolutely. California? California. Yeah. They wanted it to be the nicest. This was, again, uh, uh, Josie Hill and, and her son, Alex. And you, you always talk about how this is everyone's building. Yes. But you always talk about, too, about how this building has changed and it has yeah. become what it needs to be for the people that need at to use it. At the time it, it is. It's, if you look at its history, they were, even in their early days, they were doing opera, they were doing plays. They were trying to see what trend would actually make them steady money. And if you look at how it changed managements over the years and, and uh, changed to vaudeville and changed to movies and... Uh, it was always trying to find the trend. It was not necessarily as successful as they thought it would be, but Petaluma's the second market. So they had, uh, well, the Georgie Harper, uh, the Ge Georgia Harper crew would come and do their plays here in the first 10 years, 1904 to 1914, and they always made it a point to be at the Phoenix Theater on Christmas Eve. This is where they would spend their Christmas Eves, at the Phoenix Theater. And I uh, wished I could have been here to see those guys. Maybe I was. At any rate, <laughs> um, you can just follow their, the way they did it and, and the way they ran it. They were trying to find something that would make them money. And uh, what was the point of this? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. This is good. This is why you need a Tom and you need a Jim. Yeah, you do. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, there's a few points, honestly. But I, I want to talk about Houdini's show. That's what oh, you yeah. just reminded me. We'll, we'll, come Harry back Houdini. To, we'll come back to that. Okay. Uh, Caruso the sang here in 1904. Uh, Count Basie. 1906. Count, Count Basie played here. I mean, in, in, incredible stuff. But yeah. I, I bring it up because you told that to Lee Charles' story, and you have, um, you know, you have curated this place for 36 years, and yeah. so you yourself have been responsible for some of the more modern versions of that, including yeah, yeah. bringing what was a more contemporary form of music, hip hop, Absolutely. to a town that oh, yeah. really 
on some levels, was not ready for it. Not ready for and, it. And, uh, you know, true. you took a lot of pushback personally. I'm sloppy, but, though. But I, 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 would argue, I would argue that you have been on the right side of history with a lot of this stuff. And, you know, one story that you talk about that was really stands out to you is one of the all-time highs. The Mac Dre show, probably. The Mac Dre show. Mac Dre. It was the Mac Dre Get Out of Jail show. It was Mac Dre's Get Out of Jail show. Mac Dre is one of great, Mac Dre's greatest albums. He, he recorded while in jail on the phone uh, from Vallejo. And uh, so he got out of jail, and a mutual friend his, of his and mine called me and said, Mac Dre would like to do his Get Out of Jail show at the Phoenix. Um, I, I have no idea what that is. You want to do this show? It's Mac Dre. He's going to be an incredible artist. Uh, it's a hip-hop thing, huh? 89, I really don't know what this means. I have no idea what to expect. We took the show and uh, sold it out immediately. This was phenomenal. First off, one of the coolest places you can be in the world. Uh, one of the first things my father taught me, because we would fish a lot, one of the most dangerous places in the world you can be is at the mouth of a river during a storm. The ocean is being pushed against the river. The river is being pushed out into the ocean. And you've got this incredible force of nature pushing against itself. Pushing and pushing. It just, and you can feel the electricity if you can get close enough to it. It is one of the most dangerous places you can be. But it's also one of the most powerful places you can be. And that is recreated at, on the apron of a stage like this. If you've got a sold-out house... And you've got an audience that is so into it. And they're pushing this direction. They're throwing all this energy up at the, at the band. And you've got the band up here throwing, having an incredible show, throwing that same audience out. And if you get to be lucky enough to be one of the guys watching the stage and you're right at that crux, oh, my God, you can feel the power. And the night of uh, the Mac Dre show was one of those nights. This was just, and it was an incredible thing for me. In 1989, Petaluma, were there more than 10 black families living in this town? Probably not. Not that many. It's, we've finally come around and we've changed to a degree. I think we still have like 1.7% of our population is black. So it's not quite integrated yet, but we're getting really close. In those days, it, wasn't, it was not there. It feels when I... Yeah, it's better than it was, honest to God, in 89. So here I had for me who grew up in this town, I had a sea of white faces out in front of me, and behind me was a sea of black faces from the stage back into the dressing room, out into the parking lot with this incredible street party going on, and they were mingling out in the audience, and the energy jostling back and forth. That night, we had Digital Underground, and they had a 16-year-old Tupac Shakur playing with them that night on this stage. <laughs> I think E-40 was here. Uh, Too Short was here, Mac Maul, one of my favorites was here, and this band 5150, who was one of my all-time favorite hip-hop shows, stole the stage that night. They were not booked to be here, but nobody was going to take them on. They came right out, right out of East Oakland, they stormed this stage, and they did a set that was incredible. What a night. And this is the first time I'd ever seen hip-hop, first time I'd really ever heard it. And for me, this is the coolest way to get turned on to any music, see it live. Uh, it's quite possible the first punk I saw was Op Ivy at the Katati Cabaret. I was lucky enough to work that show, and and, uh, uh, and that was my first introduction to punk, and that was I was hooked ever since. But this was also, uh, the Mac Dre show here was my introduction to hip-hop, and we've been hooked ever since. We have done hip-hop at least once a month since then. Uh, in the earlier days, we were doing it twice a month. Uh, the kids that we met from that show were coming back from Vallejo and doing these pajama jam parties. 
<clears throat> which again, I have no idea what's a pajama jam. Well, we're all going to come and dance in pajamas. Uh, uh, really? Oh, what an elegant night that is. <clears throat> it really is. I had no idea pajamas were that fine. The women in particular were just so decked out. It was such an event. Those were my favorites, and we did those every six months for a while. They were just glorious events. But that was a turning point for this theater, you know? To I mean, degree. just like, and we'll, I, I want to talk a little bit about this, this theater's history before we finish, but, um, you know, I just, I think it's, an important thing that is overlooked about this theater because, uh, you know, we can do a hundred hip-hop shows that go well and then you yeah. do one and even now, <laughs> yeah. you know, something goes wrong and, it, and it's, it's all over the place but you have always been brave enough or perhaps... Yeah, well... Yeah, there. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, you, you talk about this applies to both of us, but you talk about a lot in life about how the people who really get stuff done are too stupid to know they can't do something. That's, and that's you and that's me 100%. I'll buy that. Yeah. You look at a lot of people that you know that have been successful. They'll tell you, I'm going to do this. You're going to do what? Yeah, I'm going to do this. It's going to be incredible. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And the next thing you know, three years later, these guys are kicking ass with the stupidest thing you've ever heard in your life. It's because they were too stupid to know it couldn't work. And it did. So you're looking at two of those people right now, <laughs> but, but before Honestly, God, okay. I guess that's true. You know, there's really no point to the Mac Dre story except for it just speaks to Mac this Dre. building. Yeah. It speaks to, you know, it speaks to you. It speaks to the managers that came before you. Yeah. Um, before we get to the Phoenix though, and just like just some of your insights on it and how important it is to you and to the community. Uh, let's talk about that Houdini story. Is it Houdini Houdini, or Houdini? is it the other guy, the one who died? And we, he he never played California again. Oh, that was that. Well, that was Caruso. Oh, Caruso. All right. What oh. a fun story this. Caruso was a was a, an opera singer back in the uh, in nineteen in the early nineteen hundreds. He was he was probably the first uh, international star, and he was touring the world being an opera singer. And he played at the Phoenix Theater in nineteen oh four. He was supposed to play in San Francisco. And uh, the, the day he was supposed to play, he got uh, double booked with an earthquake. So he got rolled out of bed. Uh, the earthquake happened. When he got out of San Francisco several days later, he promised he would never sing in Cali. He would never go through California again, which he didn't live up to that promise. When he died, apparently, they shipped his body through California for some reason. <clears throat> So he did make it back for one more performance or one more appearance. But, uh, yeah, we got to have this theater had Caruso. Uh, when you think about it, we were the one-off house in those days, just like we are today. If you're lucky enough, if the right band is playing at the right club in San Francisco uh, and they sell enough tickets, they'll take a date the night before or the night after in Petaluma. They'll do a one-off date. They're already in the area. How easy would that be? You just roll the crew up. And in those days for Caruso, it was a steamer uh, trip. He would jump a boat. He took a steamer to Petaluma. He'd play the gig. Maybe he stayed in the hotel that night. Maybe he didn't. He might have gone back on the steamer and back to San Francisco, and then he didn't get to play San Francisco. So it's, it's possible we were the last place that, uh, that uh, Caruso got to sing in, Calif in California anyway. It's tough to tell. We can't quite get a, an itinerary for him, but we know this is the place he played. So you left Petaluma for two or three years in your yeah. teens, right? Uh, uh, 19, 19. Yeah. 19, and you, what were you looking for? 20, uh, well, I grew up on Mayberry. I wanted to find Mayberry. I, did any of you guys know Andy Griffith? Yeah, very few. Oh, man. Mayberry, North Carolina was... Uh, I grew up watching the Andy Griffith show, and, and this looked like the coolest little town. Floyd's Barbershop had a, uh, had, uh, a bench out in front of it. 
And this is where everybody would hang out and tell, you know, their adventures for the day and start the adventures for the TV show. Uh, it was just whatever happened, it was mellow enough that you could probably be okay in, in, at the end of the day. And this is the town I grew up watching, and that's the town that I wanted to be a part of. Everybody knows everybody. I wanted that perfect small town. So I got a van when I was about 19 and went cross-country several times. What was the name of that van? Uh, Vince. What was that van's last name? Vince Van Goes. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> he really did. And he, uh, holy cow, what a truck. What a great fan. And we had some great adventures. We really did. Um, I also learned best not to go in the South with a California license plate in those days. <laughs> Got pulled over an awful lot just by the plate. But at the same time, Weatherford, Texas... Uh, I got a flat, and one of my rims got destroyed, and I was really stuck. Oh, Probably like Nebraska. 30 seconds on this one. <laughs> okay. Anyway, those people treated me like king. They put me back on the road, and the guy said, look, if, if you, I just think if my son's out on the road, I would want him to be treated the same way. This is why we're treating you that way. Weatherford, Texas, Alliance, Nebraska saved my life in a uh, blizzard one time. Those people took me in, fed me. <laughs> Drove me back we, out to my truck. We love all the states, and we love all the towns. Yeah. But what did you learn on, the, uh, on, this, on this three years uh, <laughs> uh, 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 traveling this fine country? Ah, I, so I got back to town, and I'm in town, and everywhere I go on the streets, people say, Hey, Tom, how's it going? Oh, great. Um, yeah, glad, glad to see you again. Well, thanks a lot. That's really cool. And I realized, well, this is Mayberry. This is the town. All I needed was the benches, and Petaluma High School gave us the benches out front of the Phoenix, so... Well, all right, I could use a little money if that's what you're getting at, but the benches were fine enough for me. <laughs> anyway. Spoiler alert, there are some fun. balloons above you. Oh. Hey, one just fell down right there. Wow. Um, hopefully that doesn't take you out of this. Anyway, okay. yeah. <laughs> so, you know. Totally blew my seat. It's just, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. We all, you know, this, this massive sold-out crowd, we all sit here tonight because your paths convened and converged with Petalumas. You know, you, you yes. grew up here, you left, you came back, came back. you found the Phoenix. Found the Phoenix, yeah. and, and just like, Refound. because of that, because of your belief in this building, because of your friendship with this building, yeah. we're here. And, wow. and it's just fascinating for, to yeah, me. Thanks for joining us. For well, it's just, you know, you frame things in such an interesting way. Like, so in the year 2000, 2001, this building had sold. Had sold, finally. The deal was, I was supposed to come and sell this for Ken Frankel because that was what I was supposed to be good at. And uh, we turned it into a dollar theater. We made it look good on paper. But the very day that I came in, this place could have sold for about $650,000 in uh, 1982, 83. And uh, 650000 was the price. Could have sold it, except... Governor Duke Majin in those days signed the bill he said he would not sign. And that bill was, if you own a brick building in California, it is condemned until you do the earthquake work, unless you're grandfathered in. Uh, as soon as you sell it, that building's condemned until the work is done. So everybody's got to earthquake it. So here I was, uh, the only guy operating this building. I was in for one day, and I was grandfathered in. But I was the only guy that could, could run it until we did the earthquake work. So here we were. Uh, in 2001, I guess? Yes. And so the, the, you know, I, I feel like we've, we've done pretty well tonight with uh, getting to, to the point of stories. Okay, I mean, the, the largest point that I'm trying to make here, and we do need to finish this, this yeah. particular story, but okay. the, the point is that you have this way of describing this building about how not only has it like shape-shifted into what it is needed to be in that yeah. moment for the community, yeah. but yeah. also doing so has like saved it. 
And this is this is an example That's of true. that. That's true. So uh, we this this building needed the earthquake work and yeah, boy, I had been uh, so I'd been leasing. I held the master lease for years and years and years, and could usually pay the rent. And uh, so here we were having uh, a, a wonderful time with it, but finally it did sell. And it, it sold to a developer that was going to uh, tear down three walls, leave one wall up, and turn it into an office building. This was his plan. And uh, Paul Elliott, uh, who is now a friend, <coughs> yeah. Oh, it would have been so bad, another office building in Petaluma. It would have been bad. It would have been the Phoenix. So it looked like it had sold. For some reason, I never felt that that was going to, that was going to, I don't know. I have no idea how it happened like this, but this is two weeks before escrow was to close. And I'm down here with a, uh, with a yellow uh, pad of paper quite like this. And I'm listing all of my equipment and I'm figuring out who's buying this and who's buying that. And what am I going to do with this? And, uh, this guy, Paul Elliott comes into my building and says, uh, Hey Tom, uh, I love, I love your building. Oh, thanks Paul. I'm Paul Elliott. Thank you, Paul. And he goes, my band player, here, the creatones. Oh, I remember you guys. I remember that. And uh, my sons grew up here, Franklin and, and uh, Morgan, Elliot. Aha! I remember your sons. They were a hoot. What a great couple of kids. He says, look, I want to help you out. Uh, you know, Paul, escrow's closing in two weeks. I don't know if you can. And he goes, uh, oh, yeah, I'm sure I can. And he hands me his card. And he, had, uh, he was the, uh, the pioneer of a group called Sarent. They had come up with a system that Cisco Systems wanted to buy. And they bought uh, his company from him at, at such a high rate of money. It started with a B, what they were paying to buy this from him. And I looked at his card. I just read the article in the paper, and I said, oh, my God. Paul, uh, yeah, but I don't know how you can do this. It's been sold. He goes, well, we're going to talk to the guy and buy it from him. Ah, uh, well, I don't know how that's going to work. And they went to this guy. He was a developer in Sausalito in Sebastopol. So we want to buy the Phoenix. Oh, I don't know if I want to sell it. And he goes, well, can we meet with you? And he came down to the Phoenix Theater. We all met in this big circle. There were just a bunch of Petaluma people, Phoenix people. And, but it was Dave Best. <laughs> Dave Best. This guy is saying, look, I heard that the Phoenix isn't necessarily that well-loved anyway, and it needs to be torn down and turned into an office building. And Dave Best, an artist in town, was literally jumping up and down. You will not! Tear this building down. You will not own this building. We freaked this guy out so much that he did sell the building back to Paul and his group of investors. So we actually bought it out of escrow. And if it had just been a movie theater showing... Correct. And that's the point. His sons grew up here and skated here and, and used it like teenage kids would do. And it's because he remembered that. And that's what he said when he gave us, when he and his, his crew gave us back the building as a nonprofit, he said, I want you to do what you're doing now, just like this. Uh, if it had not been for that particular use, we'd be sitting in an office building right now. He would have, uh, nobody would have thought as highly of the building and, and seen that there was a use that, it, that is important. And we wouldn't be here. So this is why whatever I decide to do with this place, whatever we decide, what all of us decide, I still insist it must include the kids. And that's the skate ramps <laughs> and all of that. Because they were the reason we're still here. They were the reason this stage still stands. And that's what we do. Yeah, I mean, think about it. Built as an opera house. 
Built as an opera becomes house. Becomes the yeah. showcase theater. Well, the Excuse opera me, house. becomes the California theater. California theater. Be- then it becomes the showcase, showcase theater. theater, still showing movies. Yep, still Then it becomes movies. a mixed-use movie theater yeah. and, and music hall. Yeah. Then it becomes the theater. Uh, straight-up music place. Yeah. Then it becomes a community center. Yeah, and here we are doing there this. There is no other building that has this history. There is no other building like the Phoenix Theater in the world, I would argue. But every small town should have one. Um, it's well used. There's a lot of kids that use this thing every day, and there's a lot of kids that use it uh, on occasional basis. It's just, and there's a lot of artists and other people who still use this place. And and one of my favorite kids uh, was a seventh grader, and this was in '83 or '84. I don't even know what year it was. Maybe a little bit later. And every day after school, he was coming and playing piano behind the movie screen. We had a, a baby grand piano back there at the time, and uh, Josh Staples was coming back here almost every day after school and playing his piano behind the movie screen, playing our piano. And uh, he was really the first musician that I knew to play the Phoenix Theater. So, uh, Josh, I know you're back there somewhere. And, uh, and there he is in the second row here piano. tonight, Josh Staples. <laughs> Honest to God. Actually, do we have a drink ticket for Josh, too, I think? Yeah. So, you know, we're going to wind down with the talking part, and then we're going to get to uh, well, uh, okay. another part. Here we go. But I, I would like you in front of a group of people to tell the cat in the hat story and what, okay. you, what your intent, what your desire, what yep. your thought is on the future of this building. And that's this, the thing. This improbable building yep. that under any other different circumstance would have closed long ago. But because the right people have come along at the right time, yourself included, yep. it still well, stands. And, and the people that have come back and helped, and so many of you guys out there that have come back and been a part of this. But uh, one of the stories that always stuck out to me was a Dr. Seuss story. And it was not the cat in the hat. I think it was the cat in the hat comes back. And it was the second cat in the hat. And uh, it's a rainy day, and there's these two kids. Even in those days, this was okay to do. It was a rainy day, and there were two very young kids left home alone by their mother who had to be out shopping. And while they're home alone in this house, this cat with this hat shows up and has this wild party with them in the house and totally trashes the house. And their mother is now coming home, and they know she's coming home, and this cat leaves and leaves this house in just terrible, destroyed, it was a mess. What a place. And the kids are wondering, oh, my God, oh, my God, what are we going to do? We, how are we going to, mom's going to kill us. And just before mom comes in, the cat comes back with this machine that runs through the house and totally cleans it up and makes it just the way it was before mom left the house. This was the cat and the hat comes back. This, we have done, we've had a great time with this place. And we've gone from... It being a place that Elaine O'Donnell, who uh, managed this place and taught me how to run theaters when I was a kid here. Whose family (coughs) still runs the Mystic. Weirdly, her son, Kenny O'Donnell, runs the Mystic Theater and McNears and Seared. Uh, This is, and I think of Elaine all the time. If she were to come and see this, I think she'd be taken aback. We're using it, and we're using it the way it needs to be used. But one day... This building will be back to the grand old dam that she is. I think this is, uh, we have to do the cat and the hat comes back. I'm, I'm hoping that it happens with me. But at the same time, it has to happen in a way that we can turn the, the uh, skate ramps into bleachers or something that can turn back into ramps. We're working on that part. 
It wants to be the grand old house that it deserves to be. It is an opera house, after all. And it was built in 1904. It was opened in 1904. And it, it gets to be back there again one day. But it's got to be in such a way that everybody can use it the way we need to. So that's yeah, the cat in the hat story. I, I, do, I would like, before I go, uh, to get, uh, get it so that it can have grand seats and get it so that... Uh, that when people come in, because there are a lot of play groups that come in and use this place. The first thing I tell them is, we'd be honored to have you come and do this performance. But will your performance be grand enough to outdo the Phoenix itself right now? Because this building, the way it is, can overpower uh, certain productions. So I'd like to someday get it back to a place where it can be comfortable for everybody. But I'm not repainting the men's room. <laughs> Do you have any uh, closing thoughts oh. about your life, about the no, Phoenix, I, this one's about Petaluma? Uh, well, you guys are living in one of the greatest towns there is to live in. If you live in Petaluma, you're living in one of the greatest counties. The Bay Area, it's, it's growing and it's getting tough to drive, but still the people are still the same. And uh, if you can figure out how to walk, which I've figured out how to do, I only live a mile from here. So, yeah, once the weather is right, I can walk to and from the Phoenix and then you just will love this town all over again. It's not a great driving town. I just, <laughs> but it's a, I love this town so much, and I love the Phoenix. And uh, thank and, you guys and for it, coming. You know, it's true. Before we wrap, I, I, I just think it's always important to remember it is everybody's building. Yeah, if absolutely. you have anything you ever want to do here, yeah. this man right here, sometimes to his own detriment, will let you do it. Absolutely. The only rule is, at the end of the night, I want to go home and not to jail. <laughs> if we can follow that guideline, I probably won't let you bring a chicken in. <laughs> well, I, I think my only closing thought would be, uh, Tom, you have changed my life. You have changed many people in this room's lives. You've changed hundreds, if not thousands of people's lives just by operating this space. So we are all grateful. And oh. thank you so much. Yeah, but... Oh, thank you. But at the same time, I'm sitting next to a man that is absolutely as important to this place as, as anybody can be. Jim has come in and, and helped keep the doors open for us and given new blood and new excitement to it. And it's just... It wouldn't be the Phoenix without Jim Aegis. So I say let's keep the Phoenix open forever. I think so. It, you know, look, look, we've got the sprinklers and the fundraisers and all that right now, but we do. It, Phoenix isn't going anywhere. The Phoenix yeah. is going to stay open. None of us want to live in a town or a world without the Phoenix. Absolutely. So let's not live in that world. Let's just keep it going. <laughs> let's do it. Does that sound good? <laughs> I'm in. Thank you all so much for coming Thank tonight. You so much and for um, if, if you liked watching us talk great and yeah. if not we are so sorry and yeah, um, honestly, if you've God. just been waiting for Bohemian Rhapsody well you know oh you're in for a treat we're because it's grand Bohemian Rhapsody. we're doing Bohemian Sweet. Rhapsody my god oh my god I'm gonna go pop on the Tom mask and oh I'm god. gonna come out here and sing for you um, okay. but seriously thank you all so much for coming thank we appreciate so it and let's uh oh let's get the band out let's and let's have out. ourselves a, all right, a grand finale shall let's we let's do this all right thank you for coming
Christmas fantasy Caught in a landslide No escape from reality Open your eyes Look up to the skies and see I'm just a poor boy I need no sympathy Just killed a man Put a gun against his head Pulled my trigger, now he's dead Mama Life has just begun Now I've gone and thrown it all away Nothing really matters Too late My time is cold Send shivers down my spine Body's aching all the time Goodbye everybody well, I've got to go Gotta leave it all behind And face the truth Mama ooh, I don't want to die Sometimes wish I'd never been born at Silhouette of a man I'm just a poor boy, nobody loves me. Easy come, easy go, will you let me go? Mamma Mia!
Tom Gaffney, everyone! Gio Benedetti, Joe Kellner, Lance Brown, Nate Dingley, and the Casa Grande Choir! Somebody's gonna have to clean up all these balloons. <laughs> 